0: You're listening to TTSA Talks, a new series to dive deeper than any other source into the complexity that surrounds the To The Stars Academy mission and the various people, partnerships, and projects that are helping us achieve our goals. This episode of TTSA Talks is part one of a three-part series dedicated to explaining the UAP data problem and innovative technology solutions. It features To The Stars Academy co-founder and chairman Tom DeLong with Director of Government Programs Louise Ellis. Zondo. It was recorded from their homes while in lockdown during the health crisis. For more information behind the episode, please read the footnotes to this podcast on to the Welcome, everybody, to the official podcast for To the Stars Academy of Arts and Science. I am your fumbling host, Tom DeLong. Um, this is where we're going to dive deeper into some of the projects and people behind To the Stars. Our company focused on collecting and studying anomalous data, uh, developing related technologies and explaining its implications to humanity through stories. Thousands of sightings occur and are documented every year, but there lacks a single database to consolidate all of the information. It creates problems such as poor reporting standards and researchers working in parallel instead of collaborating. So data sharing between organizations, both public and private, is poor at best and non-existent at worst but there's still an overabundance of UAP sightings that are easily explainable, whether due to satellites or weather anomalies, drones, et cetera. The problem is these other explanations require cross-referencing other databases that typically don't talk to each other. If we had a way to quickly connect these databases, then we could expedite the process of separating the wheat from the chaff when it comes to finding the sightings with the most substance. Today, we're gonna discuss and focus on the problems that we faced in the past with collecting data on UAPs and some of the exciting developments underway that are happening now to greatly improve our ability to answer one question, what is really going on in our skies? Our first guest is Luis Elizondo, a career intelligence official with the US Army, the Department of Defense, the National Counterintelligence Executive, and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Most famously, Luis was the Program Element Manager for the Pentagon's Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, otherwise known as the Pentagon's UAP Program. It's my pleasure to have him on the show and also as Director of Government Programs and Services here at TTSA. So welcome, Lou. Thanks, Tom. Thanks
1: for having me. Really, uh, Really excited to do this podcast. I think it's a great way for us to engage uh, a lot of the folks out there that don't really have an opportunity to hear from us all the time and really try to kind of kind of get to the heart of, of some of the questions that they have and and specifically some of the questions and, and, and I think some of the topics that you've been wanting to discuss too for quite a while, but really just never had that opportunity.
0: You know, when I first met you, I remember you had this really kind of uh, interesting idea because the little bit that I knew about government at the time, um, it seemed like you would potentially, when you're running the UAP program, that you would potentially be able to have access to all this data. I mean, we watch movies and we think that like, you know, you have this room with floating computers and you can get anything you want at any kind of time. And that's Hollywood teaching us things that aren't true. And what I what I learned from you is that you wanted to collect a lot more data than you had access to in the government. And what I thought was really strange was that, um, you know, you couldn't necessarily just call up another country's government uh, and ask them to collaborate. Or you couldn't necessarily just walk down the street to somebody that had a sighting or something, and grab data from that person because they were a civilian. Can you explain that kind of lack of data in, a, in such an incredible position that you had as running the UFO program?
1: Yeah, I mean, Tom, that's, that's a fair question. I, I think you know, there's, there's some truth to the fact that when you're working in a government capacity, you have the ability to leverage other elements and reach out to other elements within the U.S. government. And depending on your position, in some cases, they are obligated to respond. But that's not necessarily ca- the case when it comes to the civilian world, and you know, really, the way I look at that, the way I look at it, you have you have on one side civilian reporting, then on the other side you have governmental reporting, and you know, the old saying, "Never the twain shall meet." There's this this firewall inherently that's that has historically been in place that pro- prevents and prohibits the U.S. military or the Department of Defense from engaging in certain intelligence-type activities involving the American public, U.S. persons. And that's really important because it really stems down from originally, and I'm not going to give you a history lesson here, but I'm going to give you a quick history lesson. It goes back to the National Security Act of 1947, right after World War II, and it deals with the creation of a Department of Defense, and then later on in the early 50s, the creation of a civilian intelligence agency now known as CIA. And basically, there were these, these bifurcations, these lines, policy lines drug, drawn in the sand that prevents the U.S. military from interacting and engaging with the civilians on certain intelligence things. And that's really designed to protect the American people. You have things such as posse comitatus. So the bottom line, I guess, for the audience to know here is that there are these deliberate lines in the sand. So when I was the ATIP manager, the director, I was prohibited from talking to... Let's say Joe Schmoe or Jane. Sorry, my dog's in the background.
0: I forgive you. We forgive you.
1: He's like a big child. So uh, in essence, Tom, there is this this firewall that's built in to prevent any type of abuses with the U.S. government interfacing with the American public. Especially keeping in mind, I worked at USDI at the time as an intelligence activity. There are lines in the sand. There's particularly the DOD directive called Procedure 15 Violation, which is questionable intelligence activities. So we are drilled into our head from a very early stage, do not engage the public on anything unless it is approved. This is certainly one of those areas that there's no way we were gonna get approval on. So there was this requirement for us to basically, when I was the director, to stay within the lines, color within the lines, and stay basically focused on that information that was derived from military sources and military type equipment and aircraft and personnel. And that's really important because in some, in some cases, it allowed me to focus our efforts using some of the best technology available and some of the best, if you will, trained observers. But on the other side of the coin, it also hindered us because there's a lot more information out there from, for, for example, trained observers like local law enforcement and first responders and just people who have a critical eye, those in academia as well as our scientific communities, that information probably would have been very helpful had we had access to. So, you know, it's both a blessing and a disguise being in the Department of Defense and running that type of activity.
0: I think a lot of people are probably thinking they know what data is. You know, they're probably thinking, oh, like a satellite saw something, you know, or, or a, jet, a fighter jet pilot caught it on his radar. Um, can you go over, like, you know, some of the types of, uh, of data that you would, you would want as a program director, as the program director you were, like, what are all the different types of data that are important when you're dealing with, with UFOs, UAP, uh, just so people can have an understanding of what can help complete the picture? Well, there's,
1: there's you know, first of all, having access to, to, to data is immensely important. I think when most people, they encounter a UAP, it's usually results of someone either camping or not really expecting to even see anything. They're just kind of out doing their business. They look in the sky and they see some lights. And as interesting, as compelling as that is, we really try to look at that in the backdrop of the five observables. And if you really, really want to determine if something is moving at hypersonic velocities or instantaneous acceleration, or you know, being able to perform in ways that most aircraft can't, the human eye can sometimes be deceiving. So we rely on not just the human eye, but then we, we reinforce that data with radar data, electro-optical data, Anything that we can find that can help cooperate and triangulate that information, which the witnesses is is reporting. But then there's other information that's very interesting too. There there are data sets. You know, if I were to tell you a hundred years ago, you know, we had human intelligence and we had some sort of signal intelligence where we could intercept communications. But if I told you we we're going to have this whole thing called GeoInt, where we we're going to have these these platforms in outer space orbiting Earth, conducting intelligence most people would have no clue to to basically formulate any type of assessment or let alone even think outside the box or the same thing with cyberspace that we would have this whole other front of warfare called cyberspace it's it was beyond comprehension at the time because we just didn't have the technology well this is very much the same way there's a lot of hidden data right now in the absence of information so what do i mean by that well wouldn't it be great if you could conduct some sort of uh, testing of atmospheric ionization? We know aircraft that move through the sky very fast they strip the electrons off the atmospheric molecules and you can ionize the air and yes you can actually you can actually track vehicles that way wouldn't it be great if we had other data for example um, you know we have uh, equipment that can test magnetic resonance in the air if you have an object like a submarine underwater, you can detect a submarine using Magnetic equipment. Wouldn't it be great if we could do the same thing potentially in the sky or even underwater for USOs, for, for example? Maybe there's some ultra low frequencies or ultra high frequencies, acoustic signatures that maybe we don't realize are there. Some needles in the haystack that now we know what to look for. Now that data comes forward. Even, even believe it or not, the absence of data, the negative space, there is a a a common, if you will, hum tone that all the things in nature in certain areas make, whether it's industrial equipment and birds and animals and human beings and cars, there is this natural state of harmonics, acoustic harmonics, and it's different in different parts of the world. Wouldn't it be interesting if you could take that baseline and all of a sudden, uh, so I guess my point being is there's a lot of, there's a lot of things out there yet that, that can really provide potentially potentially compelling data that we don't even know, is out there that we can utilize. Yes, satellites is one of them. Yeah, uh, FLIR technology is another one. Radar technology is another one. But I would submit to you, there's probably a whole bunch of others. And Tom, if I were to put my finger on the very one tool that would be most beneficial for this effort would be the introduction of artificial intelligence. AI has the ability to crunch the massive amount of data that would take us weeks and months and years AI can do it in seconds. And I think that's why, from our perspective and your perspective, TTSA, one of the greatest, if you will, values we bring to this topic that's never been before in history been able to really be... Look, there's other organizations that have databases on UAPs, but no one yet has the ability to apply hardcore AI to try to find the commonalities, the connections within those data sets. And by the way, they're there. They are there. So we just need to have the capability to crunch the numbers and crunch the data in a way where where it makes sense. And by the way, that AI is constantly learning. So it's getting better and better and better and better.
0: You know, when I when you first came out of the Pentagon, I remember one of your first ideas was was the AI system, you know, and that's when I started learning about some of the challenges that you guys faced over there in the Department of Defense trying to take disparate pieces of data or data that's missing, or you can't really, again, you can't go and talk to civilians and grab their data, and and there's all these kind of obstacles. So, I mean, thinking about the challenges that you, some of the challenges that you've outlined where there are things we're not thinking about or things that exist that we're not looking at, how to bring them all together. um, Do you think that is the new process that needs to be built, the new process of reporting UAP uh, could not potentially take all forms of data into one spot. That's what I got from you when you came out. Would that help the challenges of the government in anywhere?
1: It has to be. It's going to just help us. It's going to help the government. It's going it's to help pretty much anybody because it's going to crunch all sorts of data. Remember, flight tracker data, weather anomaly data, bird migration data. Pretty much, if it can be ingested from a database, it's going to be considered. Let's, let's just go back even... 15 years ago, when you and I were growing up as kids, you want to hear the weather report. They were accurate, maybe, if you were lucky, up to two or three days. Now, we know the weather up to a week to 10 days. And by the way, we can predict, for the most part, a hurricane and its path well within a very, very close margin. And I think that's all due to the fact that we're using AI. Keeping in mind that in order to predict something as as simple or, you you ask a weather person, as complex, something like the weather, It's not just looking at a storm front, because that storm front is being influenced by other weather conditions halfway around the world. And so, you know, think of the butterfly effect. If you have a a cold front somewhere in Siberia that's pushing up towards the the Arctic, which is then influencing another cold front uh, over Alaska, pushing down into Canada, which is influencing a storm front here in Nebraska. All that is related. And by the way, that also is related to other weather patterns. Our weather pattern influences those weather patterns on the other side of the world too. So unless you have an AI algorithm that's strong enough to take all that data that's coming in, you're going to have a really hard time making accurate predictions. And that's really what we're trying to do here. We're trying to ingest any and all data, seemingly even unrelated data, and trying to, to to put it through, if you will, think of a think of a meat grinder, right? You stick a bunch of meat in, you turn it around, now you have sausage. Very much the same thing.
0: Something that that makes sense, where the data a human being now can look at and say, okay, that is
1: a logical pattern. That is something, and who knows? Wouldn't it be amazing? Wouldn't it be exciting if what we were looking at as five observables wind up being seven or eight or nine observables because
0: of this? Maybe we find some new observables we, we never knew existed. So we built this this AI system. Uh, the database called the Vault that 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 would hopefully like wine get better with age. People keep adding to it and adding to it and adding to it. Um, we created uh, an app called Scout to help ingest data. And you've had some really great ideas about how this could how this could help. And so, can you give a little rundown about you know where we would be in the coming couple years once? We've launched our AI. Once we've connected certain databases to it, once we've put out Scout, what would be like a real-world scenario of how those things all work together?
1: Well, you know, the vault, which is really the house for the AI, you know, that's really where the where the crunching, the data crunching occurs. But ultimately, at the end of the day, you need some sort of interface to interact with the human being, so information can be input into the system via the human being. And then looked at and, and a, a final product being provided to the human being. So input and output. Scout is that that means that is the mechanism in which human beings, anybody out in the world who wants to use an app, can use the app to basically gain access into the vault. You'll be able to acquire real time data, you'll have geofencing with alerts that'll allow you to know hey, there's been something that recently occurred in our skies. Does anybody else see it? Like your recent event that you posted mm-hmm. on I guess on social media, right? Wouldn't it be great if anybody who's tapped into Scout, you can hit a button and all of a sudden it's going to alert everybody within a 10-mile, 30-mile radius, and all of a sudden they can hold up their phone, and the phone will actually tell them where in the sky it's a and point, and the, and the phone will start now recording this data. So now you have triangulation. You have instead of two pairs of eyes, you have a 100, a 1,000 pairs of eyes real-time capturing the same event from different perspectives and different angles. So that's the power. Of having something like scout at your disposal because you're going to be able to to use this application to have virtually real time grab data and then get it into the vault and then the vault will then start the crunching process also equally important keep in mind the vault's going to have all sorts of other data sets again it's going to have ship ais it's going to have flight tracker information it's going to have satellite trajectories real time going overhead so it will very quickly be able to tell you what you're looking at is, for example, a military exercise and they're likely dropping flares. Uh, Very much like when when you called me, Tom, remember how how you called me excited and the very first thing I did is I opened up my flight tracker app because obviously Scout hasn't come out yet and I looked at this flight tracker and there were no civilian or military aircraft squawking within a 30-mile range of where you were on the beach. So the lights you were seeing were not, civilian aircraft because they have to squawk and they're likely not military unless they're flying in the black um, so we know from from what we call the military of the white world uh it's it's no it's no overt flying military aircraft and it's definitely not a civilian aircraft now could it be some sort of secret military aircraft or test aircraft sure could it be something else like uh, balloons like google balloons or something to that effect yeah, I mean, these are certainly possible. And this is why Scout is going to be so important because all that data will be ingested real time. And then you as a user will be able to very quickly ascertain, is this truly something, is this anomalous? Or is this something that, frankly, we just didn't know was up there? But, you know, is a large company,
0: for example, testing a, a, a weather blend or a right. weather balloon. Yeah, you know, I, when I was watching the, the UAP event the other night, I was the only one on the beach, and I'm looking at it, and you were on the phone, and I was describing things to you that you and I both know have been related with other events, but the the world at large doesn't know that, and I, that's what I always thought was pretty genius about, you know, your idea to create this community with civilians internationally with really, really cutting-edge technology, because if I didn't know those things, my phone could be alerted, I could put it up there, I could ingest the video, uh, we the the system can detect if the video is fraudulent, or it can detect with my voice if I tend if I sound stressed or if I sound like I'm lying. All these things to help cut out fakes and phonies. But the thi- the, the little attributes of it, you know, the fiery orange glow, the way it split and the way it moved and all those little things that you and I were discussing, people don't know to look for those things. Right. Do you think that this is something that can help people understand what they're seeing potentially?
1: I, I do, Tom. And I think even more even more so, I think, you know, from a governmental perspective, let's look at this as you know, take away the UAP piece entirely. Just say, look, from a practical sense, if your job in the FAA is to know and have air domain awareness of every aircraft in your sector, in your area. And all of a sudden, something comes up on your radar that's not squawking in anything. Wouldn't it be great that you could turn to Scout real quick and be able to very quickly ingest all the data that's out there to see, all right, is this, is this really a known aircraft or is this something, is this a, you know, an artifact on the radar and we need to recalibrate the radar? So there's a lot of normal uses that I see for this application beyond just the UAP interest and enthusiasts. I think there's going to be great utility here. In fact, I think this is going to be a lot like a Google. It's going to be something different for everybody. I think for the hobbyists and the enthusiasts, they're going to love the app because it really gives them the ability to be involved, right, and participate. But I also think from the scientific perspective, the academic perspective, even the national security perspective, uh, I, I think there's a lot of a lot of goodness in an app like this. I think it's going to be very helpful to a lot of people, and, and quite frankly, the it's think of Google, right? Again, like I said, it's going to be something different for everybody. You use Google probably
0: a little bit different than the way I use it or anybody else. You know, I, one of the things I'm really excited about it that, that we haven't given much attention to is that, you know, we built this AI pipeline that lives in the cloud that can ingest huge batch data from all different formats, really any format, find the patterns and offer predictive analysis of, you know, of what it, where it's going or when it might happen or what it could be or whatever, all the who, what, when, where, why's down the road we might have some insight into. But people are are thinking, okay, it's all about seeing things in the sky. Something else that I think could be really interesting, we could use the same AI system not about something seen in the sky, but it could be um, people that have had any kind of odd events or witnessed an event that 's not so tangible. We could also put in religious texts or ancient texts, historical texts, and we can find patterns throughout history that 's more centered around belief systems and different things like that it doesn't I, My point is is we can find patterns in in, in archaeological insights and stuff as well it doesn't have to be a machine in the sky
1: no and i think that's why you know this is so really this is so interesting because you know tom with your background you are the commensurate humanitarian you you know i i have never met a person that truly truly sincerely loves people like you do and for me you know i'm a little bit different it's it's uh i love humanity it's Humans that I have a problem with yeah um, and so from my perspective, you know I look at this from from the perspective of of course national security and being able to help and give situation awareness to not just every American out there but anybody in the world right uh, I look at this as, a, as an enabler for 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 everybody from a, to, to and ultimately ultimately Tom to predict now, now I'm a product of the intelligence world, so for me, predictive analysis. Is, is really the, the holy grail. So if you can have the, you know, there's some theories out there that if you can have enough data, you can predict just about anything. And you see AI being used to predict elections and predict the weather and predict all sorts of stuff, right? volcano eruptions. Well, why is this any different? I think with enough data, wouldn't it be great if one day we can actually predict, we have enough data to know, where these things are, and why they are there, the things that they are interested in, be able to predict where the next sighting might be. I right. think that would be, I mean, that, that to me is mind-blowing.
0: Yeah, it's a big deal. And then that's going to, you know, it's funny, uh, as we've seen, you know, we, the Navy came out, said it was real. The government, um, you know, has acknowledged the videos are real. The, the UAP is real, but still people have a hard time with it, you know, and these scientific methodologies that we can deploy, with this AI system is really going to help us have some conversations. I was talking to um, a couple generals to, uh, within the past two weeks about this AI system that, that come, uh, you know, from a place in the government where they care about what's up in the air. And I said, wouldn't it be interesting to be able to use this AI? And I described what it could do. I'm like, wouldn't it be interesting for able to use it for something like this, this anomalous stuff that we're seeing. And uh, they thought it was wonderful. It's a, it's a completely different type of tool, to grab grab data and and crunch you know and one of the things i found that was really interesting with you guys is that i think civilians just assume that you know we have this ins- incredible radar system satellite system and it can see ufo's in, uh, or uaps and 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 it's that simple so we could just grab that video uh, but what they don't know and i'm learning and i I want to ask you because you can describe this a lot better than i can is that these high-technology devices that sit on an aircraft carrier or on a satellite, they're collecting all this raw data that's not necessarily just like a video or something. It, you know, it, It's trained to look for what a plane will do um, or what a bird will do or a missile will do, you know, but it's not looking for things that are flying 20,000 miles an hour and taking right 90-degree you know, turns and stuff. Can you explain how um, there might be data within the raw data and it's not as easy as just pointing up one of our aircraft carriers, and we see everything. Yeah, I, you know,
1: I think there is a a, a misperception that you know we, we are one of the most sophisticated countries in the world, and because of that, we have the luxury of being able to afford the best of the best of that te- technology that's available. And so, a lot of times, people, you know, in, in theory, from a national security perspective, you want your your capabilities to be interwoven, right? So, think of a think of a, a, a nice, pretty blanket where each thread. Is is woven into the other, and you have this wonderful little patchwork mosaic that allows you to look at everything from two inches over the surface of the ocean all the way up to twenty four thousand miles above the Earth's surface, right? And you have these different layers of the cake that you can utilize. But in reality, it's more like a jumbled mess of yarn. Think of a big ball of yarn. I mean, yeah, you've got a lot of thread and capability there, but it doesn't really talk to each other very well, and if I want to find something, for example, that's at 80,000 feet, that's flying at that high, I might use one radar system. If I want to find something that's flying 50 feet above the water, I would normally use another radar system. And if I want to find something that's you know, underwater 50 feet, I would use another capability. And those three capabilities don't usually talk. So what we're trying to do here is trying to, to help the U.S. government recognize that those three systems all need to talk to each other because if you have an event one moment at eighty thousand feet and now the next moment that same event occurs at 50 feet above the water and then the next moment that same event is occurring now 50 feet below the surface you need to be able to see that and right now the those systems don't necessarily talk with each other so so that's part of the, the, the frustration that we have, because we have these incredible capabilities, but never the twain shall meet. The Air Force doesn't necessarily share their information with the Navy. Navy isn't necessarily sharing that information with the Marine Corps. And, you know, those three organizations don't necessarily always share their information up to, to the headshed. Um, I don't think it's purposeful. I just think that, you know, the Navy has its mission, and they're, they're very good at sure what they do, and they're focused on it. And the Air Force has, you know, got their mission and they're focused on theirs and an and army and vice versa, I think. So it, it's breaking down some of the, the stovepipes and those cultures and trying to enable the government, give them enough data so they can recognize the value in creating a cross-cutting initiative at the senior executive level that can tap into every single one of those stovepipes and bring that information together into a collective
0: central belly button. Love it. I am I, so excited for this artificial intelligence system that To The Stars Academy has created. Um, it's up, it's running, it's working, it's built. Um, it's never finished. Software obviously evolves. So over the next five years, we keep adding to it and adding to it. It gets bigger and bigger. Google today is not what Google was 20 years ago. Um, but our AI system is up and we're. I'm just so excited to give that um, to the world, help, help people learn about these things. But more importantly, you know, I, I remember when I first met a lot of these multi-star generals before I knew you, Lou, and um, I, I, always, I wanted to be able to offer you know, my, my way of communicating to young people. I never thought that I would meet you, number, number one, but then I never thought I would be able to provide a vehicle to help put together what you need what you were doing, what could be a benefit, uh, a big benefit to the U.S. government and our allies. Like, so to sit here now, and I I have so much pride, like, wow, we did something cutting edge, needed, um, that can potentially really, really help out, you know, all the different organizations and institutions that need the help on this UAP issue. And in the process, all these young people across the world are going to learn with us. So, I um I couldn't be more excited, and I think uh, we're going to have a, a wonderful time uh, teaching people over the next few years.
1: Well, In fairness, too, I think it's it's I think it's important for the audience to realize that you know this is not just a good idea fairy coming down and sprinkling sprinkling some fairy dust, and all of a sudden this thing is now you know thought into existence. It took a lot of time and money, and and I I don't think that that the listeners may necessarily realize. The important role you played because you can have a good idea, but without the resources and without having
0: the connections and the talent, it doesn't happen. It's not reality. It's really exciting, and I I, I can't wait for people to to see what this AI can do. Now we're going to do it to to bring in all these databases and plug it into the internet real time alerting people where to look with their phones grabbing the metadata all that kind of stuff can we get into classified databases where guys like yourself and our team that have security um, clearances can go and offer kind of real world data and then plus the classified data, and you guys can put together something for your partners over in the Pentagon or wherever, that's where this gets really good, where we can start offering solutions for people to learn and get everyone working together. And um, the last thing I'd like to to ask you, because right when I just said that, I just realized that people don't understand why satellite data or or certain things are classified. Like, people won't get that. Well, why can't we just fucking plug in to... The National Reconnaissance Office and all their satellites, they're there. We pay for them. We're Americans. You know, can you explain why that data can't come into the AI in a way that the world can see that? Like, what, what's important about that stuff being quiet?
1: Well, data can go up, but it just doesn't go down. Uh, that's kind of the old saying in the government. And the reason why, it has nothing to do with the mistrust of the American people. It has to do with there's no way to, to reveal that information to only the American people and keep it out of the hands of our foreign adversaries who want to know what we know. So think of a chessboard, right? One thing is to go ahead and know what your pieces can do on the chessboard. It's another thing to learn the capabilities of your opponent's pieces and what they can do, their capabilities and what they're thinking and his strategy or her strategy. So a lot of times you have to keep your own you have to keep your own pieces secret. So your adversary can't collect information on your own capabilities right so they know that let's say there's a satellite that can uh, look at things uh, in a certain spectrum of light and we have a capability that can look at things in a much broader spectrum of light well we don't necessarily want to tip our hand and let the let the adversary know that we have that capability We want to keep it secret so there's no way to share that with the American public and ensure it doesn't get into the wrong hands. so that's that's really why you have two reasons. You, you classify information sources and methods. Um, I do want to hit on one thing real quick, Tom. You mentioned, you know, AI is only as good as the teacher, and I want to make sure everybody understands for expectation purposes. When this first comes out, you can expect there's going to be normal glitches that we're going to get. We're going to work through. There's going to be some some probably uh, connective issues, but you know, we have to teach the AI to understand the difference when someone says sends us a video and says, look, I I caught an alien on film and it's his little sister in the kitchen, you know, making cookies. Uh, You know, there's going to be a lot of that. There's going to be a lot of people trying to spoof the system on purpose and trying to test it. That is okay because in order to separate the wheat from the chaff, we need to have those negatives come in. So I want to let people know and the listeners know that, you know, at first when this this scout and this vault comes out, there's going to be a lot of learning. But the more people participate and the more people contribute to this, the better and faster and more accurate it will become. So, you know, uh, it's, again, I hate to go back to the Google analogy, but when you type in the search requirement, back in the day, when you t- typed in a certain word in the search requirement, if you misspelled it, it came back with, sorry, nothing to see here. We don't have any results. But now AI knows that when you type in uh, cot, you know, I want to see pretty cots, but You know, it says, did you mean cats? And here's all the pictures of pretty cats, right? Right. It's the same thing. So it takes a little bit of time. I want to make sure for expectation management, people have patience with this. A lot of time, a lot of money has gone into this thing, but it needs time to learn. Think of an infant child opening its eyes for the very first time and looking at the great wide world. It needs time to ingest information, to rationalize that information and be able to de-conflict you know, a, a true signal versus a false signal.
0: Right. Hey, thanks, Lou, for for coming on and uh, giving some insight. I want to appreciate uh, you in front of everybody because yeah, it was your idea to get the AI off the ground. And uh, and having it now, uh, I think that we're on for a, a really interesting next couple of years and hopefully provide some answers. For more TTSA talks, including part two of this series, please visit to the starsacademy.com.